You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. We're going to turn to God's Word, uh, to the book of Isaiah, and we've been looking for many months at the last part of Isaiah from Isaiah 40 through today to the last part of Isaiah chapter 66. We're going to look at verses 14 to um, 24. And uh, I hope that this will be beneficial to each person here because initially when you look at it, it does seem just a little disappointing. And what I mean by that, you come to the end of a film or a book and it's somewhat disappointing. You kind of, maybe you come out in the cinema and you go, is that it? Or you close the book and you go, is that it? Um, The mystery hasn't been resolved, the bad guys win, and it's so depressing. Of course, if you go to see a Hollywood film or a Disney film, then you know what the result is going to be. And the good guys always win. Uh, the American saves the world, and everyone lives happily ever after. The guy gets the girl, or the girl gets the guy, or whatever. Um, if you go and see the kind of arty foreign films that you like down at the DCA, that I like down at the DCA, then you haven't a clue what's happened at the end. Um, but you just nod and go, hmm, that's profound. Um, but um, that's... No, what happens here? I want to go just to the last verse... Now, this has been, this book of Isaiah, for those of you, if you just come in, this book of Isaiah is just, has been so rich in, in gospel content and in wonderful teaching about Jesus. And you kind of expect something different from this. This is the very last verse, verse 24, and they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me. Their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. The end. It's not exactly, and they lived happily ever after. And it, it, it seems, how does this comfort, how does this fit in with this great gospel message and the servant coming and so on? How is this vision, as in Isaiah 1 verse 1 it's described as, how is this vision not ended up by being a nightmare? Well, we shall see. We'll go through um, the whole of this part. In fact, let me read. Let me read from verse uh, 14. When you see this, and it's referring about the peace like a river being extended and so on. When you see this, your heart will rejoice and you will flourish like grass. The hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but his fury will be shown to his foes. See, the Lord is coming with fire and his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For with fire and with his sword, the Lord will execute judgment upon all men, and many will be those slain by the Lord. Well, that certainly seems to fit with the uh, verse that we read right at the end. Now, what is this talking about? What it's talking about, it's it's really, really important. And, And this is a golden rule for understanding the Bible, an absolute golden rule. Never, ever take verses out of context. Always put them in context. And what is the context here? If you, if you had time, you could read through the whole book of Isaiah, and if you could understand what was being said, and you understood the context, what you would grasp is this. 
God's people are in trouble. God's people have been attacked. God's city has been destroyed, Jerusalem. The temple's been destroyed. Um, There are promises of uh, a servant coming, a servant savior coming. But one of the big issues in the whole of Isaiah is this. God's people are in trouble not because of the pagans. God's people are in trouble because of themselves, because of the apostates and those who have turned away from God and those who are pretending and those who go through the religious rituals. And so what has been spoken of here, and it's a really solemn warning, and it's not really a solemn warning so much to those who are unbelievers, who are outside the church. It's a solemn warning to those who are inside the church and who are hypocrites. It's a, 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 a sin that Jesus mentions so many times. And in verse 4, back in, uh, in chapter 66, he says, I will choose harsh treatment for them and bring upon them what they dread. For when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, no one listened. They did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. Now, what puts people off Christianity more than anything else? The answer is, you and me, if we are Christians, and we profess to be Christians, and we don't live like Christians. What puts people off is the church. What puts people off is hypocrisy. What puts people off is people like me who preach the word of God and then act contrary to it. That really devastates. I remember when I first became a Christian, there was a particular um, young lady who was very influential on me, and I thought she was just the most wonderful Christian. And one of my friends, completely out of the blue, said, yeah, that's fine, David. You wait until things go wrong in her life. And then you'll see where her Christianity is. And then you won't believe anymore. And things did go wrong in her life. And she did turn away from the Lord. And it was, for me, it was a devastating experience as a young Christian. An older Christian who I admired and who I respected. And then when the surface was taken away, there was an awful lot of, of hypocrisy. And an awful lot of people just saying, you know, people who come along. I mean, what is the difference between somebody who comes along to church and really enjoys it, enjoys the singing and uh, likes being with people and gets involved and who really believes it and someone who doesn't? The answer is you can't really tell until the bad stuff happens. That's why Peter says that our faith is tried in that way. And here's an astonishing image because... I think in Isaiah, that's one of the themes in Isaiah. It's God warning his people about hypocrisy. And, he's, and, and, and God is saying he's going to come in awesome power, surrounded by fire, like a whirlwind, with a sword. It's fire, whirlwind, and sword. And it's the fire that consumes all that is impure and wrong. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 29, you will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens you have chosen. And in verse 17 here, it says, these who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens. Now, what's been talking here is a particular type of pagan worship that had been assimilated with uh, the worship of the Lord. And he talks here about those who sanctify and purify themselves. 
John L. Mackay talks about those who modify and qualify Yahweh's requirements in a way that appeals to us, but is absolutely obnoxious to the Lord. And I think, before we (coughs) go on to look at the rest of this, I think there's a really solemn warning for me and for those of us who are Christians. I I, I can't help but see the fire of the Spirit and the whirlwind that came at Pentecost and the sword of the Spirit being the Word of God also being connected in with all of this. And sometimes you and I as Christians, and I'm speaking to those of us who are Christians, we pray for God to work in our midst and for God to renew us and for God to make us spiritually alive. We need to be careful what we pray for because I think when that happens, there is a shaking that occurs that shakes us to our very foundations because we realize we're not as righteous as we thought, we're not as good as we thought, we're not as pure as we thought, we're not as holy as we thought, we're not as committed as we thought. And God says, I will come and I will come with fire. Our God shall surely come, says Psalm 50. He will not keep silent. Great storms shall be around him. Fire shall go before him. And there's a cleansing, the day of Pentecost and all that goes on. There has never been a revival in the history of the Christian church which did not begin with the people of God being utterly prostrate before him because he shows us our hypocrisy. There's a fury there. And and we may say, well, look, this is ridiculous, God being angry with us and all this kind of stuff. And that's not what we want to hear. I'll tell you why God is angry. Because his glory is being besmirched. Because his beautiful gospel has been twisted and turned into something ugly in the eyes of the world because of those who profess to follow him. So I think... McShane's great quote, make me as holy as a pardoned sinner can be, is one we need to know. And we need to pray for holiness, and we need to pray for reality, and we need to pray that hypocrisy would be far from us. Because it's a stench. It's a stench to God, and it's a stench to human beings. And it's that sometimes, sometimes the hypocrisy is absolutely breathtaking and We say that when we see it in others, but when we see it in ourselves, it's almost as though we want the ground to swallow us up. So God comes, first of all, with this this warning that what we're doing here is we're not, we're not playing a game. We're not to trivialize things. We've not to muck around. We are dealing with a holy God, and we are are coming into the most uh, wonderful and beautiful thing, and we, we mustn't trivialize it. And we mustn't fake it. And we mustn't pretend, you know, there's almost nothing that's worse than someone pretending to be holy. But of course, it doesn't end there. This is not God has come to his people and he said this to them. But he's also, he's setting before them what they're saved from. But he's also setting before them something that they're saved to or for. So um, let's read in verse 18. And I, because of their actions and their imaginations, am about to come. And gather all nations and tongues, and they will come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them and will send some of those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers, to Tubal and Greece, and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. 
They will proclaim my glory among the nations, and they will bring all your brothers from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord on horses, in chariots, and wagons, and on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels. And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. Well, this is an astonishing promising promise. This is God telling us what his strategy is and what his plan is for communicating the good news, for saving the world. Just summarized in these verses. Now, again, it goes back to chapter 1, and it goes through the whole of Isaiah, but especially these last few chapters where uh, God has spoken about the new creation and leading to the new city, leading to the new society, leading to the new house. So, back at verse 1, where is the house you will build for me? And the Lord says, I'll build a house. I'll build a house where I will be present. And that's God's purpose. What is God's purpose for the world? God's purpose is that they will come and see my glory. The goal of mission is the glory of God, that God may be known and honored for who he really is. God tells us that's the goal, and then he gives us the methodology, or at least he tells us how it's going to happen. First of all, there'll be a sign. This will not be a sign that's a banner at a distance. It will be a sign within And what is this sign to be? Well, early in Isaiah, we've been told about the sign of the miraculous child, the virgin birth, the child being born. But surely in the context of the whole of Isaiah and Isaiah 53 and the context of the whole of the Bible, the sign is Jesus, his life, his birth, his life, and above all, his cross. It's the sign of the cross. Some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus, Matthew 12, 38. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign. These guys knew that the Bible told them to look for a sign. They were wanting a sign. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Well, what's that? For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What is the sign of God's glory? What is the sign of God's blessing? What is the sign of God's promise? What is the good news? It is Jesus Christ. It is Jesus, what He has done, and who He is. And all of Isaiah points to Christ, and all of the Old Testament points to Christ, and all of the New Testament points to Christ. That is, they will declare, my glory among the nations. I will set this sign and I will send some of those who survive to the nations. This is the remnant. This is the faithful remnant that's spoken of earlier in this chapter and also earlier in Isaiah. Those who believe in God, those who trust God, what do they do? They take the gospel to the whole world. Now, the names that are mentioned here are interesting because it's Isaiah's world, so he talks about Tarshish, which is almost certainly Spain or a place in Spain. The Libyans are from Africa. The Lydians are from Asia Minor, which we would now know as Turkey. And Tubal is the far north, um, which is not Scotland, it's Russia. Almost certainly one of the stands as we now uh, know them, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan or whatever. And also Greece, to Tubal and to Greece. And 
to the distant islands who've not heard of my fame or seen my glory, and that is us. And this is this amazing image that Isaiah has, this picture that he has, that his known world, he's saying the gospel is going to go to all that known world, but it's going to go beyond to a world that's unknown. It's a great promise there. And, and people are going to be gathered to Jerusalem. <coughs> Verse 20. Now, there's some, um, there are different ways to understand this passage. Some people understand it as the literal return of the Jewish people to the city of Jerusalem. But even those people who do regard it in that way, they don't expect today that people are going to come back on horses, chariots, wagons, mules, and camels. I mean, they they don't take it that literally. But that's one way of understanding it and of taking it. But I, I think in the context of the whole of Isaiah, in the context of the whole of Scripture, and the fact that it's talking about the new heavens and the new earth, I think that's probably mistaken. I think there's something more involved. Or just before we come on to that, let me say something about the Lydians, because I was intrigued by this phrase, the Lydians, famous as archers. Why mention that? Well, as far as I can work out, trying to find out, there seem to be uh, two main reasons. One is to say, These are real people, not mythical people. You know about these people. These are the ones who are famous as archers. But the other might be that these are people who are warriors and who are hostile, and you're still going to go, and you're still going to tell them the gospel. But come back to this gathering of people to Jerusalem. In Galatians 4.24, we're told this, these things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she's in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem is above is free, and she is our mother. And I think what happens here, and it gets, you know, interchange. You get people go, well, this is just all figurative, or they go, this is just all literal. It's actually, it's always, almost always, a mixture of both. (coughs) The... Bible doesn't deal in myths, but the point about the Jerusalem that is above is really, really important. And all that it's saying is that God is going to bring people into His kingdom, and they will come from all different parts of the world. And today, this day, today, this prophecy is being fulfilled in our world as there are Christians who are meeting in Nepal and Christians who are meeting in Chile and Christians who are meeting in France and Christians who are meeting in Dundee and Christians who are meeting in China. All over the world, there is not a country where there are not people who are worshiping Jesus Christ, even North Korea, even Saudi Arabia. It really is um, wonderful what the Lord continues to do in terms of building His church. But the image is even stronger than that because He talks about uh, they will bring all your brothers and so on and I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites. We don't understand what a radical message that is because for a Jew that was a, a startling image. Maybe a Gentile could be brought in. Maybe if they went through the cleansing rituals and so on. But for a Gentile to become a priest. But 
It would have, it would have taken something extraordinary. And Paul tells us what that was. Ephesians 2.14, the dividing wall of partition is brought down. Ephesians 3.6, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. It is the nations that are harvested. God's concern is not with the rituals. Again, you go through Isaiah and you read that. The rituals point to his purpose. His purpose is to save people. His purpose is to bring in the Gentiles. They're brought as an offering to the Lord. That does not mean, by the way, that God has forgotten the Jewish people. The methodology in the New Testament, certainly of Paul, was to the Jew first. And we need to continue to pray for the Jewish people. And the Lord has a particular purpose for the Jewish people. But that purpose is that those who come and believe in Christ would be like us Gentiles who come and believe in Christ. We would be united together in Christ. And that's why at verse 22, he goes on, as the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. From one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord, and they will go out and look upon the dead bodies, and so on. Now, here he talks about the final destination. And again, as in so many other parts of the Bible, it's, it's taking the whole history of the world, if you like, from the fall to um, the return of Christ and the judgment day and the new heavens and the new earth. And it's just bringing it all together. From one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another. What's that talking about? The new moons was uh, the first day of every month of the lunar calendar. In Isaiah 1, verse 13, we read this. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Your new moon Sabbaths and convocations. I can't bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals. I hate with all my being. They become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. But these were festivals that God commanded. These were things that God wanted. That's like God saying to us, I'm sick of your hymn singing. I'm sick of your psalm singing. I'm sick of your prayers. I'm sick of your Bible reading. I'm sick of your worship services. But Lord, you, this is what you want. No, it's not what he wants. He doesn't want the hypocrisy of worship that comes from lips and not from hearts. I hate with all my being, he says. Now, in the new covenant, Colossians 2.16, therefore do not let anyone judge by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. In the new covenant, those festivals from the Old Testament, they're, they're, they're gone. But they were shadows, and it's the substance that is needed. And what's being spoken of here is God is saying, my people will, ha will have this joyful dedication to me. It will be real worship and real praise. Now, the image, again, is very interesting because it's an image of a city, and there's a cemetery outside the city. And as Daniel says, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And Jesus takes these words in Mark 9, the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. Please don't take this literally. It was never intended to be taken literally. It's not there's a heaven and there's a hell in the, in the sense of where, you know, there's all these worms eating away at people's hearts. 
Calvin, and what better authority I can for, for saying this. He says this, their fire shall not be extinguished. When he says that they shall be tormented by fire, this mode of expression, he says, as I have formerly remarked, is metaphorical. And this is clearly evident from the succeeding clause. For worms will not be formed out of the earth to gnaw the hearts of unbelievers. The plain meaning, therefore, is that the wicked shall have a bad conscience as an executioner to torment them without end, and that torment awaits them greater than all other torments. And finally, that they shall tremble and be agitated in a dreadful and shocking manner, as if a worm were gnawing the heart of a man or a fire were consuming it, and yet thus consumed he did not die. This is not about worms eating away at people. This is about us turning away from God, rejecting God, choosing to live without God, and for all eternity facing up to the consequences of our own choices. In the synagogue, verse 23 is read again after verse 24 when this is read in public to soften the ending. But I don't think it needs to be softened. I think Jesus was so clear about this in quoting this, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The point is he's creating an image to make us feel disgusted and to make us feel revolted and to make us say, this is not what we want. This is the wages of sin and I, we don't want to go there. We don't want to live with the consequences of choices which separate us from God and from goodness and from love and from beauty. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's why the message of Isaiah can also be summarized in Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. There's this picture of a city wherein dwells righteousness, a city where there is newness and beauty and music and joy, and dancing, and feasting. And outside, there's a grave, a cemetery, where the people are alive, and they are tormented by what they have done, and what they have chosen. It's a solemn business that we deal with. The whole book of Isaiah like the Bible, moves from God being the creator to the creations of the new heavens and the new earth. How we get, if you like, to the new heavens is through Jesus. John 12, 41, Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus and spoke about him. That's what Jesus tells us. Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus and spoke about him. And the whole book of Isaiah is almost like the Lord is saying to his own people, things are far worse than you think that they are, even though you see them pretty bad, but they're actually worse. And what's in this world is worse, and what's in your heart is worse, but I have a far greater plan, and I have a far greater redemption that is being promised. And you see, I think here there's this wonderful promise, as the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me. I remember once thinking, well, if God created the world perfect and humans fell, when I go to heaven, what's to stop us falling again? And the answer is given here. The new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me. God is prepared a place for his people where sin cannot enter and where we freely love him. 
And maybe we've had to go through the whole of this earth in order to get to that place. But it's a, it's a guarantee that's promised. Now, I hope next Sunday morning to begin looking at Romans. And I have to confess this. Um, my son gave me a row a few years ago because I said um, we were talking about preaching and different things and he was just beginning to head that direction. And I said, you know this, I've never preached through Romans. And he went, oh, Dad. You know, just to give, just give me a row. You know, imagine not having preached through I've never preached through Romans. I've been 30 years, I've never preached through Romans. Why not? Because, I, I mean, I love Romans and particular bits of Romans and so on, but I actually found Romans trying to understand and grasp and, and get it. And also, I had the whole Bible to preach, so it wasn't any particular desperate rush. Um, but I've, now the time has come. Because I see Romans as kind of like a, almost an extension or an expansion of Isaiah, this tr- tremendous gospel that every verse in Romans reaches out and draws from the whole of Scripture. And I think I would summarize Isaiah in the terms of Romans 8, verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that would be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. The whole Isaiah is about God creating a new heavens and a new earth. And Romans is saying, this is the creation is groaning, it's groaning, it's groaning, and, and that's what we're looking for, and we're looking to be renewed. And I think one of the problems that we have as Christians as we meet in worship is so often we're looking for immediate renewal for us here and now. You know, I, I put it at a fairly trivial level. Uh, Paul prayed three times for the thorn in his flesh to be removed. Well, I've I prayed for my cough. You know, many more than three times and stuff like this to be removed. And then we sing Psalm 41. And it's all about lying on a bed of sickness and, you know, being sinful. And that's why you're there kind of thing. And I have to think about it all and how wonderful actually that particular psalm is. But we do. We think about the immediate. We think about the now. We don't think about the time when there'll be no more sickness and sorrow and suffering. And so I thought I would finish this with, um, there's a a wonderful essay in a book about C.S. Lewis called uh, The Romantic Rationalist, God, Life, and Imagination in the Work of C.S. Lewis. And there's an essay in it by a man called Randy Alcorn. And I think for me personally, Lewis, one of the great gifts he's been able to do for me is to help me long for heaven much more. And I think that this is what Isaiah is about. This new heavens and the new earth will endure. God's promising this. So let me just say a couple of things from that essay that I think reflect on this. Um, Alcorn quotes Lewis from a letter that he wrote to an American woman who thought she was dying. Listen to this. This is what he wrote to this woman who wrote him thinking that she was dying. Lewis said, can you not see death as a friend and deliverer. What is there to be afraid of? Your sins are confessed. Has this world been so kind to you that you should leave with regret? There are better things ahead than any we leave leave behind. Our Lord says to you, peace, child, peace. Relax, let go, I will catch you. 
Alcorn goes on to talk about how, for Lewis, reflecting biblical teaching, the best is always yet to be. The best that we enjoy here, great food, relationships, worship, and culture, it's a mere foretaste of what awaits us on the new earth where we'll be without sin and death and curse. In that world, we always see God himself as the fountainhead of joy. And this is the absolute trick to grasp. It's not a trick, it's a reality to grasp. We think that what we've got here is reality and what we think about heaven is image. And Lewis saw it the other way around. So in the last battle, (coughs) I love this description of, uh, he said, uh, everyone raised his hand to pick the fruit he best liked the look of. And then everyone paused for a second. This fruit was so beautiful that each felt, it can't be for me, surely we're not allowed to pluck it. It's all right, said Peter. I have a feeling we've got to the country where everything is allowed. What a great image. And then, uh, too long a passage, I won't read it all, but when they're talking, uh, the eagle and Lord Diggory, for those of you who know the books, but um, Lord Diggory says this about the eagle. They're talking about Narnia and they're talking about um, all that happened. The eagle is right, said Lord Diggory. The Narnia you're thinking of was only a shadow or copy of the real Narnia which has always been here and always will be here. Just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or copy of something in Aslan's real world, you need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures, have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it's different. As different as a real thing is from a shadow or as waking life is from a dream. The new Narnia was a deeper country, Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you'll know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. You are not going to go to heaven as a believer and go, wow, this is completely strange. I hadn't anticipated any of this. What you will find is that all in this world that's good and beautiful and true and real, this is the shadow and the reality is what Christ has prepared. Again, just maybe want for, indulge me with one more quote from the last battle. Aslan gave the children the shocking news. You know how the story, there was a railway accident and so on. He said, there was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter 
is better than the one before. That's what you get offered. When you come to know Jesus and love Jesus and serve Jesus, it's not that you get this story all sorted here and now. It's that you enter into this much bigger story and this much greater certainty. And I think Lewis is reflecting Isaiah in that. That we have this choice. We can choose to be outside in the cemetery, being eaten away by our own sins and our own consciences and our own desires and our own twistedness. Or we can be inside with the lamb at the center of the throne, feeding and, and protecting and wiping every tear from our eyes. Let's pray. <coughs> we thank you, O oh Lord, for the great messages that came through you, through Isaiah, to your people, not just then, but to us today. And we pray that all of us would understand what it is that in this great story that you tell us, it's a reality, this new heavens and this new earth. We pray, O Lord, that we would long for it. We thank you for all the foretaste that we have of it in this life, all the many good gifts we receive from you, and that we can worship, and we have music and song, and we have culture, and we have family, and we have relationships, and so many things. But we long for that day when there's no more pain and sorrow and suffering and sickness and distortedness and hypocrisy. And we ask that you would forgive us and that you would enable us to rely and lean wholly on Jesus Christ, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. May those who do not know you desire to know you. And may those of us who do long to know you more. In your name we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.